The attack on your capital sparks fly between those who want to investigate and those who want to move on. Warnings of energy and food shortages this winter, COVID vaccinations for kids could be days away, and the death of one of our greatest citizens. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to West Wing Reports. It's Friday, October 22nd. The question on the motion is favorably report to the House. Those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed, no. In opinion of the chairs, the ayes have it. And there you have it, Mississippi Congressman Benny Thompson announcing the unanimous vote to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusing to cooperate with the committee that's investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So what's behind the 9 to nothing vote? One Republican on the committee, Wyoming's Liz Cheney, explains. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. On January 6th, a mob breached the security perimeter of our Capitol, assaulted and injured more than 140 police officers, engaged in hand-to-hand violence over an extended period, and invaded and occupied the United States Capitol building, all in an effort to halt the lawful counting of electoral votes and reverse the results of the 2020 election. What does this have to do with Bannon? Well, on his talk show the day before the attack, Bannon said this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay, it's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in the war room, a posse. You have made this happen and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. All hell is going to break loose. Well, that's exactly what happened. A vicious attack on the Capitol and on our democracy. And it sounds like Bannon, a one-time top aide in the Trump White House, knew all about it ahead of time. Thus, the subpoena. But he says he'll ignore it. And on Thursday, Republicans voted to support him. They were outvoted by the full House, which, of course, is dominated by Democrats. Now, consider the irony here and the great sadness and danger for our faltering democracy. And it's this. House Republicans seem not to care that someone could be so contemptuous of the very body in which they sit and claim to revere. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. 28 million American kids could be getting COVID vaccinations within days. The White House rolling out a plan to offer shots for kids aged 5 to 11 at pediatricians' offices, primary care sites, children's hospitals, pharmacies, and schools. So far in the U.S., about 190 million people have been fully vaccinated, including 
12.5 million under the age of 18. Meantime, you've heard about the supply chain problems because of the pandemic, worker shortages, production down, goods not getting to market, and so forth. Economists and energy analysts now say there could be shortages this winter of energy. You may have noticed that prices are soaring. There could also be food shortages, too. That means higher prices at the grocery store, of course. That's if stuff is even available. Bloomberg reports that people are stockpiling everything from canned goods to boxed items. The toilet paper shortages from the early days of the pandemic, well, they're back too. Worker shortages, meantime, are so severe that layoffs are vanishing across the U.S. The number of Americans filing for first-time unemployment benefits has now fallen to its lowest levels since the pandemic began. Turning to other news, President Biden's two big bills, infrastructure and what he calls human infrastructure, remain stalled in Congress. But his legislative efforts now expected to be about $3 trillion in total for both bills would still be an unprecedented attempt to expand social services for millions while tackling the rising threat of climate change, as well as updating roads, bridges and so forth. In just a moment, we're going to talk about the death this week of one of our greatest Americans, Colin Powell. First, though, let's take a look at another Evergreen podcast that I know you'll enjoy. On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, we lost a great American this week, Colin Powell, Secretary of State, four-star general, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, advisor to numerous presidents. Many Americans wanted him to run for president in 1996. He thought about it and said, no, I'm just a soldier. It was a reflection of the man's humility, a man who rose from nothing really and scaled the heights of power. Uh, let's talk about uh, General Powell just uh, briefly. Uh, my guest is David Priest, a former CIA officer who served under two presidents and worked on the famous PDB, that's the President's Daily Brief, and other intelligence materials each morning. He's the author of The President's Book of Secrets, The Untold Story of Intelligence Briefings, to America's presidents, uh, one of the more insightful books about how Washington works that you will ever uh, read, uh, frankly. Uh, David, uh, you knew uh, General Powell uh, briefly uh, when he was Secretary of State. Tell me about your, your, your interactions with him and tell me something that our listeners might not know about uh, Colin Powell uh, the man. We know he was obviously the things I mentioned, uh, general, secretary of state, all that. But what was he like sort of behind the scenes uh, in your view? Absolutely, Paul. Uh, first of all, I mean, there's many people who have extensive interactions with him. And, and I didn't. I only had a few 
interactions with him, but they came at different points in my life and career. And I think each one of them highlights something about his legacy. So first, for people of my generation, my first awareness of uh, Colin Powell was not from his army career, or even as I found out later that he had been deputy national security advisor and then national security advisor in the Reagan White House. Uh, For me, it was during the Gulf War, when Iraq invaded Kuwait and the United States led the coalition to liberate Kuwait, um, that's when I was very politically aware, very interested in Middle Eastern politics. And I watched it just as a civilian. I was not working in the government yet. But I did even then appreciate his clarity of communication. And presumably, uh, that reflected the clarity of his thinking. Um, But as you alluded to, I first encountered him when I was actually working at the State Department as the desk officer for Kuwait and Bahrain. And I had seen him when he gave his opening speech, and I had sat in the secretary's suite for several senior level meetings uh, with him. But those weren't direct personal communication as such. They were just witnessing uh, a new leader in the building. But I did have one episode that that actually stuck with me more than than most. It was one day not long after the new administration had come in and he had been sworn in as Secretary of State. And I was sitting in the office of one of the Iraq desk officers, because obviously Iraq and Kuwait at that time, Saddam's still in power, still threatening Kuwait in many ways, uh, the no-fly zones, all kinds of issues that required coordination between the Iraqi desk and the Kuwaiti desk. And I was sitting in there and talking to this foreign service officer. And as we're talking, suddenly a shape appears in the doorway to the office. And it's a man wearing a a flight jacket. And he just peeks his head around the corner and says, what are you talking about? And I look over and sure enough, it's Secretary Powell. And this was a bit of a surprise because the reputation, at least of the previous secretary and presumably most secretaries of state is when they walk through the building and visit an office, this is a moment of pomp and circumstance. This is a, a almost a formal event. With him, there was no staff with him that we could see. It was just him poking his head in, asking what we were talking about. The action of the Foreign Service officer in the room was, was quite telling. She literally jumped up if at attention and started saying, well, sir, sir, we're talking about this, sir. And he just got this little wry smile on his face as if to say, I don't want formality. Uh, I I just want to hear what you're talking about, because I think I heard something about Kuwait, and I know a thing or two about Kuwait. Um, I like that. Uh, To me, that said, it it kind of showed his desire just to listen, just to be part of a good conversation. That's the one that sticks with me the most. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you. I think that's a a very telling story and kind of a side of him that, uh, you know, most Americans obviously saw him as you originally did on television. But that story, I think just a wonderful uh, anecdote about the humility of the man. And people need to remember that this was uh, the top uh, officer in uniform in the armed forces. He didn't go to West Point or Annapolis or anything like that. He went up uh, through the ROTC, born in the mm-hmm. Bronx. He went up, uh, he, he came up, uh, frankly, the hard way. He didn't have yeah. any breaks when he was younger. He just uh, worked and was uh, diligent and uh, humble. And he said uh, later on that one key to his success was just, uh, just those attributes, work hard, uh, look out for others, stay loyal to those for whom you work. These are just uh, simple 
traits. And I know that uh, some people, you know, say that uh, those attributes are maybe uh, in short supply today, but uh, I'm not sure that they are. If this country can produce a man like uh, Colin Powell, uh, certainly mm-hmm. there are others out there. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And one reflection of that is how he was perceived internationally, because not, I mean, U.S. military leaders and people who become uh, representatives of an administration during a contentious time, as, of course, secretaries of state do, are not always perceived well. Um, but I got to see up close and personal one time how he was perceived. And, of course, it was in a very special place for him, which was Kuwait, for the 10th anniversary of the liberation of Kuwait, not long after he was sworn in as secretary of state in uh 2001, there was a huge event. The Kuwaitis threw a massive celebration of their uh, liberation, and they invited back former President George H.W. Bush. They invited General Norman Schwarzkopf. They invited now Secretary Colin Powell, as well as people like former Prime Ministers Thatcher and Major from the United Kingdom and a whole number of congressmen and others from the Bush administration who who had helped liberate Kuwait. And I recall that at the events the Kuwaitis were holding, um, of course, there was great deference to former President Bush and the Kuwaitis uh, revered him for the strong action he took. But Colin Powell got a, a lot of attention from not only leaders of Kuwait, but a lot of the, the just regular Kuwaitis who had access to these events. He, he was almost the rock star there. And I don't think it was because he was Secretary of State. I think it's because He had a natural sense of authority. He had respect for the Kuwaitis that he interacted with. And I think they paid that back uh, in turn. Um, And I'll say that 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 legacy also is a strong one that has received less attention uh, in the last few days. People have focused a lot on his uh, interactions with the Bush administration and the Iraq WMD issues, and in some cases, the Gulf War, but not as much about his perception among these foreign populations. Interesting. Well, a man who certainly uh, personified what uh, Douglas MacArthur, I believe, said such a long time ago, a duty, honor, uh, country. And uh, there's no question that uh, Colin Powell uh, personified uh, all of that. Uh, David Priest, a former CIA officer who served under two presidents and worked on the famous uh, President's Daily Brief for uh, many years. Uh, Always a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. Now let's open up the West Wing Report's archives and take a look at what made history this week in the past. The dots and dashes of Morse code Abraham Lincoln this week in 1861 received the first transcontinental telegram. It was sent to him from San Francisco by California's Chief Justice. You know, like radio in the 1920s, television in the 1950s, or the internet now, the telegraph ushered in huge changes in the way Americans communicated with each other. Just two days after Lincoln received the telegraph from California, the federal government halted its use of the famous Pony Express and turned to what Western Union called lightning lines to spread communications nationwide. The telegraph, by the way, would have vital military applications as well. The president spent long hours in the telegraph room during the Civil War. 
1929, the Great Depression began with Black Thursday, a massive Wall Street crash. It was followed five days later with yet another huge crash called Black Tuesday. It began a decade-long collapse that affected much of the Western world. At first, President Herbert Hoover downplayed the crash. Millions of Americans would lose their jobs, and Hoover would lose his in the election of 1932. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. And in 1962, going public with his knowledge of Soviet nuclear missiles in Cuba, John F. Kennedy demanded their removal and threatened war. After a tense standoff and a U.S. attack on Cuba looming, the Soviets eventually gave in. Easily the most dangerous chapter of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis nearly led to nuclear war between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Analysts estimate a nuclear war between the two nations would have killed half of Americans back then, 100 million people and 100 million Soviets. I'd like to end each week with a quote, something you might find thoughtful. This week, it's from James Madison, our fourth president. Madison, by the way, is regarded as the father of the Constitution because he wrote so many of the Federalist Papers. Anyway, here's his quote, which certainly resonates today. Quote, the advancement and diffusion of knowledge is the only guardian of true liberty, unquote. Madison, in my view at least, would not think much of platforms like Facebook and Twitter, where it's so easy to spread disinformation and lies, which these days are difficult to separate from facts and knowledge. Again, the quote, the advancement and diffusion of knowledge is the only guardian of true liberty, unquote. Think about it. That's all for this week. Here's my email, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. That's P-B-R-A-N-D-U-S, pbrandis at evergreenpodcasts.com. I try my best to answer all emails. All I ask is that you keep it civil. Please include your full name and town, and thank you. West Wing Reports is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer, sound engineer, and designer, Noah Fouts. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The question on the motion is favorably report to the House.
Those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed, no. In opinion of the chairs, the ayes have it. Mr. Chairman, I request. Shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. I call upon Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. On January 6th, a mob breached the security perimeter of our Capitol, assaulted and injured more than 140 police officers, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand violence over an extended period, and invaded and occupied the United States Capitol building, all in an effort to halt the lawful counting of electoral votes and reverse the results of the 2020 election. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo. For a podcast known to move the needle for investors, Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.